Hey guys, welcome to Colored Red. Sorry about the slight delay. I had a little bit of a technical difficulty, but we're back on track today. Um, I've been thinking about the case tonight for some time, and it's one of the cases that I originally had in mind when I decided to make this podcast. I know there's an episode about it on A Crime to Remember, which is definitely worth watching. There's also an episode about it from the My Favorite Murder podcast, but overall, I think it's a partially forgotten about story that was monumental in shaping laws and crimes committed in midair and crimes committed with an aircraft. At the time, Colorado was the first place this kind of act of terrorism had ever happened. And it was sort of the beginning of a newfound fear of flying during an age when people were just starting to turn to plane travel over train travel. Um, the possibility of any kind of sabotage involving an aircraft had scarcely been considered. A lot of my information today is going to be from a bizarre little book I bought called Mass Murder in the Sky, The Bombing of Flight 629 by R. Barry Flowers. And I've also taken information from the FBI historical files and Ranker, as well as the A Crime to Remember show. Today I'll be talking about the bombing of Flight 629, and if you've never confronted true psychopathic selfishness, this story will be a perfect example of the worst outcomes to come from the mind of someone who truly considers themselves and their problems to be the only thing that matters in the entire world. You'll see how for such a person, no number of lives lost are too much to repay a monetary debt or briefly enjoy a frivolous purchase. Until this moment, the concept of a commercial airliner being brought down for any reason was unheard of. If you ever get the chance to read the book Stiff by Mary Roach, I can't recommend it enough. It's a darkly comedic book about the scientists who piece together information about deaths and the events leading up to the death by analyzing the bodies left behind. Mary Roach has an entire chapter in her book dedicated to the investigation of plane crashes, and she follows an investigator named Dennis Shanahan as he investigates the downing of TWA Flight 800. Now, this isn't the flight that we're going to be talking about, but his investigation of that flight is incredibly relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. The cause of the accident for the downing of Flight 800 is still unknown, although many different theories are out there. So I'm going to be a little bit lazy and read an excerpt from her book because it's a very revealing chapter about just how horrifying a plane crash is, as if we really couldn't imagine it. But what's more telling is everything that goes into analyzing a plane crash after it has happened. She's such a great writer that I don't want to paraphrase it, so here's an excerpt from Stiff by Mary Roach, and I have to warn you that it gets graphic. Bound for Paris from the JFK International Airport on July 17, 1996, Flight 800 blew apart in the air over the Atlantic off East Mauritius, New York. Witness reports were contradictory. Some claimed to have seen a missile strike the aircraft. Traces of explosives had turned up in the recovered wreckage, but no trace of bomb hardware had been found. Later, it would come out that the explosive materials had been planted in the plane long before the crash as a part of a sniffer dog training exercise. Conspiracy theories sprouted and spread. The investigation dragged on without a definitive answer to the question on everyone's mind, what or who had brought Flight 800 down from the sky? In the case of TWA Flight 800, Shanahan was on the trail of a bomb. He was analyzing the victim's injuries for evidence of an explosion in the cabin. If he found it, he would then try to pinpoint where on the plane the bomb had been. 
He takes a thick folder from a file cabinet drawer and pulls out his team's report. Here is the chaos and gore of a major passenger airline crash quantified and outlined, with figures and charts and bar graphs transformed from horror into something that can be discussed over coffee in a National Transportation Safety Board morning meeting. 419, injury predominance right versus left with floating victims. 428, mid-shaft femur fractures and forward horizontal seat frame damage. I.S. Shanahan, whether the statistics and the dispassionate prose helped him maintain what I imagine to be a necessary emotional remove from the human tragedy behind the inquiry. He looks down at his hands, which rest, fingers interlinked, on the Flight 800 folder. He says, Maureen will tell you I coped variably with Flight 800. It was emotionally very traumatic, particularly with the number of teenagers on board. A high school French club going to Paris. Young couples. We were all pretty grim. Shanahan says this isn't typical of the mood behind the scenes at a crash site. You want a very superficial involvement, so jokes and lightheartedness tend to be fairly common, but not this time. For Shanahan, the hardest thing about Flight 800 was that most of the bodies were relatively whole. Intactness bothers me much more than the lack of it, he says. The sorts of things most of us can't imagine seeing or coping with. Severed hands, legs, scraps of flesh, Shanahan is more comfortable with. That way, it's just tissue. You can put yourself in the frame of mind and get on with your job. It's gory, but it's not sad. Gore you get used to. Shattered lives you don't. Shanahan does what the pathologists do. They focus on the parts, not the person. During the autopsy, they'll be describing the eyes, then the mouth. You don't have to stand back and say, this is a person who is the father of four. It's the only way you can emotionally survive. Ironically, intactness is one of the most useful clues in determining whether a bomb has gone off. We are on page 16 of the report, heading 4.7, Body Fragmentation. People very close to an explosion come apart, Shanahan says to me quietly. Dennis has a way of talking about these things that seems neither patronizingly euphemistic nor offensively graphic. Had there been a bomb in the cabin of Flight 800, Shanahan would have found a cluster of highly fragmented bodies corresponding to the seats nearest the explosion. In fact, most of the bodies were primarily intact, a fact quickly gleaned by noting their body fragmentation code. To simplify the work of people like Shanahan, who must analyze large numbers of reports, medical examiners often use color codes. On Flight 800, for instance, people ended up either green, which meant body intact, yellow, crushed head, or the loss of one extremity, blue, loss of two extremities, with or without a crushed head, or red, loss of three or more extremities, or complete transection of the body. Another way the dead can help determine whether a bomb went off is through the numbers and trajectories of the foreign bodies embedded within them. These show up on x-rays, which are routinely taken as part of the crash autopsy. Bombs launch shards of themselves and of nearby objects into people seated close by, and the patterns within each body and among the bodies overall can shed light on whether a bomb went off and where. If a bomb went off in a starboard bathroom, for instance, the people whose seats faced it would carry fragments that entered the fronts of their bodies. People across the aisle from it would display these injuries on their right sides. As Shanahan had expected, no telltale patterns emerged. Shanahan turned next to the chemical burns found on some of the bodies. 
These burns had begun to fuel speculation that a missile had torn through the cabin. And it's true that chemical burns in a crash are usually caused by contact with highly caustic fuel. But Shanahan suspected that the burns had happened after the plane hit the water. Spilled jet fuel on the surface of the water will burn a floating body on its back, but not on its front. Shanahan checked to be sure that all of the floaters, people who were recovered from the water's surface, were the ones with the chemical burns, and that these burns were on their backs. And they were. Had a missile blasted through the cabin, the fuel burns would have been on the people's front or sides, depending on where they had been seated, but not on their backs, as the seatbacks would have protected them. So that was no evidence of a missile. Shanahan also looked at thermal burns, the kind caused by fire. Here there was a pattern. By looking at the orientation of the burns, most were on the front of the body, he was able to trace the path of a fire that had swept through the cabin. Next, he looked at data on how badly these passengers' seats had been burned. That their chairs were far more severely burned than they themselves were told him that people had been thrown from their seats and clear of the plane within seconds after the fire broke out. Authorities had begun to suspect that a wing fuel tank had exploded. The blast was far enough away from passengers that they had remained intact, but serious enough to damage the body of the plane to the point that it broke apart and the passengers were thrown clear. I asked Shanahan why the bodies would be thrown from the plane if they were wearing seatbelts. Once a plane starts breaking up, he replies, enormous forces come into play. Unlike the split-second forces of a bomb, they won't typically rip a body apart, but they are powerful enough to wrench passengers from their seats. This is a plane that's traveling at 300 miles per hour, says Shanahan. When it breaks up, it loses its aerodynamic capability. The engines are still providing thrust, but now the plane's not stable. It's going to be going through horrible gyrations. Fractures propagate, and within five or six seconds, this plane's in chunks. So you might be asking why I'm bringing up Mary Roach's book, and... It's very relevant to our story today because our story today um, started a sudden and newfound fear of aircrafts and all the problems that could go wrong with them, accidental or intentional. And all of this began in the United States with a plane crash that killed 44 over Longmont, Colorado. On the evening of November 1st, 1955, passengers were milling about Stapleton Airfield, which would later become Stapleton Airport. The air tower is still standing in the Stapleton neighborhood. Um, Passengers sat, waiting to board planes, and said goodbyes to their loved ones from the gates. For several of them, this was going to be their first flight. Commercial airline travel was still something new, and many airlines were running campaigns to convince people to travel by plane instead of train. 39 passengers and 5 crew members boarded Flight 629 and had no idea that their fate would soon be sealed by a man that... 43 of them had never even met. The plane was destined for Portland, Oregon, but it would never make it past the Colorado state line. Flight 629 was a four-engine prop Douglas DC-6B, and it originated from Newark's LaGuardia Airport, stopping in Chicago before making its way to Denver. The man piling the plane was Lee Hall, a World War II veteran with extensive experience. At 6.52 p.m., the plane took off from Denver on its way on the uh, 10,029-mile trip to Portland, and it took minutes for it to begin cruising at 4,000 feet. 
At this point, the crew and passengers unbuckled their seats and began getting comfortable with cigarettes and the drink service. Eleven minutes into the flight over Longmont, Colorado, the plane exploded, sending it and the 44 people on board flaming into fields of sugar beets and farmland beneath them. Not a single person survived. Among the passengers was a child and his mother on their way to see his father for the first time, uh, who had been stationed in Okinawa, and a passenger named Daisy King on her way to visit her daughter in Alaska. Eisenhower's Deputy Secretary for Public Health was on board, as well as Don White, a co-pilot who was brought in at the last minute due to a union dispute. The senseless and tragic deaths of those aboard seemed like a tragic accident at first, but investigators would soon learn the real reason behind the fate of the flight that day. Details from flight control, as well as those pieced together after the incident, revealed the last few seconds before the explosion. Captain Lee heard a loud noise come from beneath the airplane before his seat unhinged and slammed into the metal ceiling of the cockpit. The plane then ripped into thousands of pieces, sending debris, passengers, and luggage out into the dark, cool air. The propellers of the engine continued to spin as everything fell down to earth, and you can only imagine what anyone still alive could have been thinking in this moment as farmland came closer and closer. Some were still strapped in their seats, blind to when the impact would come and take their lives. The wreckage covered more than two miles of Weld County's farms. Several local farmers witnessed the huge plane exploding mid-air and coming down, the sound of which was eerily silent until impact on the ground. 22-year-old Kenneth Hopp was the first on the scene after seeing the plane nosing towards the ground on fire. Bud Lang was another witness who said the crash looked like a shooting star, and a farmer named Arlo recalled digging up part of the engine manifold on his property. In the show A Crime to Remember, they depict a woman coming out of her farmhouse after hearing an explosion to find a burning plane seat sitting in her front yard. Seats with people in them rained from the sky and landed all over the county. The remains of the passengers were recovered and put into a temporary morgue at the National Guard Armory in Greeley, Colorado. FBI fingerprint analysts came to help identify the victims. Nine victims were identified first by family and friends, and the other 21 victims were fingerprinted and identified by matching their fingerprints to the FBI's civil fingerprint database. United Airlines supplied the fingerprints for the crew. The remaining 14 victims who were not identified through fingerprints were identified later on by relatives and personal items. The Civil Aeronautics Board, FBI, Denver Field Office, and United Airlines worked to determine the cause of the explosion. A detailed examination was done of the parts of the airline by engineers for United Airlines, but they were unable to determine the cause of the explosion from looking at the pieces individually, so they had to get creative. On November 7, 1955, a mere six days later, the Civil Aeronautics Board's Chief of Investigators reported that the plane had been sabotaged based on accounts of ground witnesses and from the damage on the pieces. After the initial explosion, another explosion was believed to have followed from one or more of the fuel tanks hitting the ground. At the time, a certain type of aircraft fuel was used that was much more volatile than what is used today. The Stapleton Tower operator indicated that he saw a flash of light at the distance at approximately 7.03 p.m. and believed it to be the first explosion. 
Judging by the height of the flash, they could determine the approximate cruising altitude of the plane um, and where it was right before it exploded. The United States Postal Service was tasked with collecting the mail that was among the debris, and they collected more than 400 pounds of post that was scattered out in an area about eight and a half miles long and four miles wide. The pattern of the mail further indicated a sudden explosion as the result of sabotage rather than a malfunction that would have been slower to take effect. The remains of the aircraft were brought into a guarded warehouse and sections of the plane were then wired to a full-size mock-up of the plane like a giant puzzle. They determined from this reconstruction that the explosion started at Station 718 in the rear cargo pit. They checked the cargo to make sure that there was nothing being transported that was explosive or volatile and had accidentally gone off. They then further determined from the smell left behind from the ignition source and small bits of copper wire that the plane had exploded due to dynamite, and in addition, they determined that this didn't come from the commercial cargo, but from the area where passengers' luggage had been stored. They determined this because the area had bent outward more dramatically than any other area, and fuselage skin from this area had um, been shattered into small pieces with great force. The source was narrowed down further when it was discovered that baggage in this area was only from people from Denver and was not originally there before the transfer. Five small pieces of sheet metal were badly burned, and they were among the wreckage, but they were not determined to be part of the plane, indicating that they must have been part of the bomb. The piece was red on one side and had the letters HO written in blue, and it was determined to be a part of a 6-volt battery that served as a detonating device. So on November 13, 1955, it was made publicly known that a planted dynamite bomb caused the explosion. Investigators now knew that the plane had been deliberately sabotaged, but who would want to sabotage it and why? Initially, thoughts were with some kind of union issue, as Colorado has had a sordid history with union violence, and the airline pilots were involved in a union dispute at the time of the crash. But no further evidence for this could be uncovered. However, um, full background information was pulled for everyone aboard the craft. They first looked at anyone who canceled reservations for the flight or didn't show up and ruled out anyone in that category. They went around to any family members and friends of those who were on board and asked them a number of questions like, did they have any marital problems, suicidal behavior, enemies, or extreme financial difficulties? They also gathered descriptions of the luggage on board to see if the associated contents of any of the bags could be determined and lead to the passenger's bag that the bomb was planted in. The investigators then checked with the baggage handlers and they told them exactly what had been loaded because of a unique situation that had happened with the baggage. A baggage handler had lost his keys, and when the plane landed in Denver, they unloaded all the luggage from the number four hold and moved them to other areas to search for the keys. They replaced only Denver luggage in that hold, and only three people from Denver checked bags, and only one of those bags was 30 pounds overweight. And that bag belonged to a woman named Daisy King. Curiously, the investigators discovered a number of personal effects on the plane belonging to a woman named Daisy King. This included personal letters, a checkbook, traveler's checks, newspaper articles about her own family, keys, and receipts for safety deposit boxes. 
The articles were noteworthy as they painted her and her son, Jack Gilbert Graham, as a troubled or at the very least more complicated family than average. One of the articles revealed that Jack Gilbert Graham had been charged with forgery and that he was put on the area's most wanted list in 1951. These items were deduced to be in Daisy King's personal items that were near her when the plane went down. Larger pieces of everyone's luggage could be identified, except for those of Daisy King. Only tiny bits and pieces were ever found, leading investigators to believe that the bomb had originated in her suitcase. Investigators now turned their attention to Daisy King and her son, Jack Gilbert Graham. His records were obtained through the Denver County Probation Office, and though there was nothing there to indicate violence or murder, he wasn't exactly a model son. He had spent 60 days in a Texas jail for liquor law violations after crashing into a police barricade following a police chase. In 1948, Jack joined the U.S. Coast Guard but received an honorable discharge the next year despite being reported AWOL for 63 days during this time. He had a rank of motorman third class when he was discharged. When back in Denver, Graham worked a number of odd jobs, but um, one was working as a payroll clerk where he stole checks and cashed them after forging the company's president's name on the checks. On November 3rd, 1951, Graham was convicted of forgery and sentenced to five years probation and was required to pay restitution in the amount of $2,500 that was stolen and an additional $1,800 in fines. Daisy King paid for the funds stolen herself so that her son could get out on probation, and he had made regular payments on the fine and reduced the balance to just over $100. He had not understood the seriousness of the forgery crimes at the time of his arrest, and his mother was noted as being overprotective of him. There was some kind of strange dynamic that existed between Daisy and her son, maybe because she felt guilty about abandoning at an orphanage when he was little, or felt bad about the hard life that her children had growing up. She was always arguing with Jack, but was always also helping him. And it would seem that instead of understanding his mother's situation or forgiving her or being grateful, he always wanted more, and he always wanted the easiest way out. During his probation, he held down a steady job as a heavy-duty equipment mechanic until early 1955, when he started working as a manager at his mother's drive-in restaurant. Graham had dropped out of school in the ninth grade, but received a high school diploma equivalent after passing tests to enter Denver University, and spent his brief time there using stolen money on drinking and partying. Upon hearing all this information, um, investigators were now completely focused on the life insurance of the passengers, particularly those of Daisy King. They found three policies on her life, and in Graham's home, they discovered a duplicate policy for 35 thousand dollars that was taped behind a dresser. At this time, this was the maximum amount that could be taken out in an insurance policy from the vending machine. The other two policies had King's daughter and her only living sister as beneficiaries. And what I mean by vending machine was it was typical in this time for there to be kiosks inside the airports for travel insurance in the event of something taking place. It was literally just a vending machine where you place a few coins into it and then the forms would be dispensed and filled out and placed into a slitted box before travel, which is not necessarily more morbid than any other life insurance policy, but I feel like it's kind of a frightening thing to have next to the boarding gate of planes. 
Following the discovery of these insurance policies, the investigation of Jack Gilbert Graham and his life was now in full swing. John, a.k.a. Jack Gilbert Graham, was born on January 23, 1932, in Denver, Colorado. When he was just three years old, his father, William Graham, passed away with no warning, and leaving um, Daisy King and her son alone in the middle of the Great Depression, um, Daisy King ended up moving Graham into an orphanage because she was not able to care for him financially. He then spent time in a series of foster homes until the age of 13, when his mom came and removed him from the foster home life after remarrying to a man named John Earl King in 1941. They moved into a nice ranch in northeastern Colorado, but life wasn't easy living after this. Financial difficulties were always looming over the family until John King was forced to begin selling off bits of his land until it was all completely sold by 1950. The family then moved to Yampa, a small town about 100 miles from Denver. Over the years, Daisy began to prove herself as a successful and shrewd businesswoman. Finding success in real estate and in small business, she opened up a drive-in restaurant at 581 South Federal Boulevard, and despite all of the success, something seemed to still be amiss in the family. Jack and his mother were always at odds, often about money. Customers and family and friends alike could attest to the two of them screaming at each other in front of everyone. It was discovered that the plane accident was not the first explosion to alter the life of Daisy King and Jack Graham. A gas leak in the Carhop restaurant only a couple of months prior to the plane crash had caused an explosion that had destroyed part of the restaurant, and no one could pin down why the gas leak had occurred. It was suggested that, as of late, the business hadn't been doing as well as Daisy King would have liked, and she had suspicions that her son was stealing money from the receipts of the restaurant. On November 10, 1955, Jack Graham was first interviewed by the FBI with his half-sister. Jack and Helen, his sister, tell investigators about their hard life during the 1930s, after their father died. The daughter went to a religious prep school, but her son went to an orphanage, and Daisy then bought a house for Jack after John King had died, maybe trying to undo something from the past to make her feel better. But Daisy could not seem to be happy, even when things were going well. Perhaps a shadow of the Great Depression was always looming over her. Helen told investigators that Daisy had mood swings and on occasion had attempted suicide. It was revealed that in December of 1954, Daisy King purchased a house at 2650 Mississippi Avenue where Jack, his wife, and Daisy all lived together with Jack's two children. Jack revealed in the interview that he thought the car hop business could be better without his mother looming over his shoulders. He said that the explosion at the restaurant had been caused by some kind of vandals, and that there was money stolen from the register, and several windows had been broken. Later, it would be revealed that Jack had briefly worked for the insurance company that insured the restaurant, and he stood to gain from any insurance claim on it. He then revealed that his mother had actually put forth the idea to sell the restaurant as it was losing money at the time. Daisy controlled all the finances of the house and controlled the finances of Jack and his family as well. Here we have this situation where she's his boss, his landlord, his roommate, and his financial controller. Had she sold the restaurant, Jack would be out of a job yet again. On the other hand, her estate was worth $1 million in today's money, and that would have been split between Jack and his sister, a sizable amount of money that would end his troubles for a long time. 
Questions then turned to Daisy's baggage and whether or not anyone in the household knew what was in it. They all stated the same thing, that Daisy was very particular about her packing and that she always did it alone with no assistance. Jack mentioned that she had rounds of ammunition in her checked bag because she planned to do some caribou hunting while in Alaska. On November 11, 1955, investigators had a chance to get Jack's wife alone and she revealed a new piece of information that she thought was relevant. Gloria Graham, Jack's wife, corroborated much of his story. She said that Daisy liked to pack her own bags with no help and also mentioned that Daisy was often away from the house to run a business that she had in Steamboat Springs. Then she mentioned that her husband had given Daisy a gift on the day of the plane trip. Gloria had thought that it might be a tool set that Daisy had mentioned she wanted. According to Gloria, Jack had brought the gift into the house that day in a long, wrapped package. He took the gift down to the basement where Daisy had been packing her bags, and one neighbor even verified that Graham was intent on buying this toolkit for his mother for Christmas, and that he planned to wrap up the gift and place it in Daisy's bag as a surprise. This same neighbor reported that right after the flight 629 took off, Graham was very ill and pale. Following the explosion, he was unable to eat or sleep and spent a lot of time wandering aimlessly around the property, which the neighbor attested to his grief about the death of his mother. At this time, Jack Gilbert Graham was the number one suspect, but he was allowed to remain free as investigators developed an ironclad case that had no possible room for error. On November 13, 1955, Graham and his wife voluntarily came to Denver Field Office to identify fragments from luggage that was thought to belong to Daisy King. They also asked Grandma more about the ammunition and about the gift that Graham had supposedly put into his mother's suitcase. He denied ever buying the tool set and placing it in his mother's luggage. His wife continued to press that he had bought the tool set and that she had seen the wrapped gift, but Jack continued to deny it. Investigators then grilled him about his actions that day at the airport, where he brought his wife and children to see his mother depart. They asked him why he bought a separate policy and mailed it to himself for the largest amount possible, and he didn't have an explanation and denied ever purchasing the policy. He was further speechless when they informed him that they had found the policy taped to the back of a dresser in his home. Jack informed them that he saw his mother off, then they ate at a coffee shop in the airport where he became ill, likely due to bad food at the coffee shop. Graham was then notified that he was a suspect in the bombing and that he had a right to have an attorney present. Jack Graham remained confident that he had nothing to hide and agreed to take a polygraph test, as well as have his house and vehicle searched. During this search, Investigators found a roll of copper wire with yellow insulation in the pocket of Graham's work shirt, and it was identical to the wire that was used in the bomb. They also told him that he had been identified when he purchased dynamite from the hardware store, and that they located the supply company in Denver where it was established that he purchased the one type of timer on the 26th, then later came back to exchange it for a different type. Both were for 60 minutes. With the weight of the deaths of the 44 people on him, and the mounting evidence against him, Jack Graham finally confessed to planting the bomb on the plane that day with the purpose of killing his mother, and only his mother. Looking to possibly unburden his conscience, Graham also confessed to staging the explosion at the restaurant two months earlier. He also confessed to purposely abandoning 
1955 Chevrolet that he owned on a railroad track for an approaching train to hit in order to collect insurance on the vehicle. He then described the bombing of Flight 629, describing the device as being 25 sticks of dynamite, a couple of electric primer caps, a timer set to 60 minutes, and a 9-volt battery. So with all this information in a signed statement, the mystery came to an end on November 14, 1955, a mere two weeks after the bombing had occurred. On November 17, 1955, Jack Graham was told of his charges and that he faced a $100,000 bond, which he could not pay, placing him in the custody of the U.S. Marshal. At the time, there was no federal law on the books about the sabotage of a plane or about blowing up a commercial airliner, so the DA decided to charge Jack Graham with only the murder of his mother, Daisy E. King, knowing that he would get a conviction. Jack Graham's sister then opened up about the strained family relationship. She admitted to feeling uneasy around him in recent years, describing him as sullen and possessing pent-up aggression. She mentioned that he had made some disturbing remarks following the bombing of Flight 629, such as, Can't you just see those shotgun shells going off in the plane every which way, and the pilots and passengers and grandma jumping around? According to his sister, Jack had been physically abusive to her and his wife, she said that there was an instant in the summer of 1955 when Jack awakened to find his wife was not next to him, and when he found her playing cards with his mother and sister, he grew furious and hit Gloria multiple times. After this, Daisy became afraid of her son. On the day of the flight, it was believed that Jack carefully wrapped the prepared bomb like a gift and placed it into his mother's suitcase. The timer was set to 60 minutes, so Jack stalled and the family left the house late with Daisy King worried about making her flight. Upon arrival at the airport, Daisy gave Jack some change and told him to go buy some flight insurance policies, at which point he also purchased the additional policy for the highest amount. Upon weighing Daisy's bag, the gate attendant notified her that her bag was 30 pounds overweight and that she would have to pay a hefty fee or have it shipped to her in another way. The gate attendant told her that she should open the bag and see if anything could be removed. So imagine this moment with Daisy and the gate attendant hovering over this bag, which has a ticking bomb in it, deciding whether or not to open it. Jack Graham at this point came up and convinced his mother to pay the fee and to not deal with the hassle of shipping the bag or leaving anything important behind. After some thought, she agreed and the family then took their seats as Jack Graham looked around the room at everyone that he was about to send to their deaths, including an infant baby and his mother. He watched them all board the plane, and he stood and watched the plane take off. Anything could have gone wrong. The flight could have been delayed, the bag could have been opened, the bag held behind, but nothing that day stopped that plane from taking off with the bomb aboard, and Jack Graham watched it all happen. A Denver radio station host named Jean Amol and a photographer for the Rocky Mountain News were able to slip a camera inside the jail where Jack Graham was being held. Graham said, I loved my mother. She meant a lot to me. It's difficult to tell exactly how I feel. She left so much of herself behind. Graham then noted that the FBI had brought up inconsistencies in his wife Gloria's statements, as if to try to pin her as well as Graham, and he ended up saying that he was not about to let them touch her in any way, shape, or form. 
It was agreed upon that the FBI, United Airlines, and Denver DA wanted the trial and sentencing over with as quickly as possible. To avoid anyone trying to paint Graham in a sympathetic light or alter the jury's perception of the case. Because of this, the interview done by Gina Mole would not be aired until several decades after the fact in a documentary called Murder in Midair that was shown on PBS. On December 9, 1955, Jack Graham was arraigned in Denver District Court. He signed over much of his property to his wife upon his arrest. Jack Graham pled innocent, and innocent by reason of insanity, claiming to not be in his right state of mind before, during, and after the crime was committed. To determine his state of mind, he was sent to Colorado Psychopathic Hospital to be examined by two psychiatrists from the defense and two appointed by the court. While being interviewed by one psychiatrist, Graham recanted his confession, claiming to have confessed to the bombing of Flight 629 only after being given the idea during an earlier interview by FBI agents in an office in which he noticed a photograph on the wall of Nazi saboteurs being taken into custody and agents unearthing a supply of explosives. Earlier, he stated to reporters that his confession came by means of police intimidation and that he did not recall ever signing a confession. He stated with high emotion that he would never kill anyone and that he respected people's lives too much. Despite all of the backpedaling, each psychiatrist found Jack Graham to be legally sane and he was sent back to the Denver County Jail. On February 10, 1956, Graham attempted to commit suicide in jail. A deputy sheriff found him on the floor with socks wrapped tightly around his neck. Jack Graham was then given sedatives and placed in a straitjacket for his own protection. Later, Graham maintained that he had bombed Flight 629 and, according to the doctors, Graham had claimed that he was completely aware that the plane could have held 50 to 60 passengers and that it made little difference to him. It could have been a thousand, for all he cared. He said that when their time comes... There's nothing they can do about it. Jack Gilbert Graham's trial began on April 16, 1956. There was a ton of public and media interest as this was the first act of airline terrorism committed in the United States and that it was brought forth for the purpose of killing only one woman aboard. The decision to keep TV cameras out of the courtrooms was reversed with the judge having control over their presence and some TV cameras were allowed in court as well as the sound on film, broadcast for radio and press photography. Jack appeared confident and calm in the courtroom, always wearing a crisp suit and chewing gum and talking with his attorneys. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses, including FBI agents, other law enforcement, the Civil Aeronautics Board, investigators, crash analysts, technicians, scientists, and any other experts who could attest to the events on the airliner that day. Evidence of the homemade bomb, examination of the wreckage and crash site, the plane reconstruction, and the discoveries of the bomb materials in Jack Graham's home were all put forth before the jury. The defendant's own 20-page written confession was also presented, and on day 15, after having called some 80 witnesses and showing 174 exhibits, the prosecution rested. The defense called only eight witnesses, none of whom provided evidence or testimony to refute that presented by the prosecution. Jack Graham himself refused to testify in his own defense, in spite of insisting to the media that he would take the stand and that they could hear enough to clear his own name.
After only 69 minutes of deliberation on May 5, 1956, the jury found Jack Gilbert Graham guilty of first-degree murder, and they recommended that he be put to death. Motions for a new trial were denied, and at this time Jack Gilbert Graham was given the stand, where he requested that he not even be given another trial. Graham was sentenced to be executed on August 26, 1956, and after a couple of stays of execution, he was set to be executed in January of 1957. So on January 11, 1957, Graham was executed in a Colorado State Penitentiary gas chamber and pronounced dead at 8.08 p.m. Before his death, he said, As far as feelings of remorse for these people, I don't. I can't help it. Everybody pays their way and takes chances, and that's just the way it goes. Jack Gilbert Graham was 25 years old. Jack Gilbert Graham hated his mother. He hated her enough to kill 43 innocent people just as long as she was killed in the process. Jack Gilbert Graham was entirely preoccupied with how he would be making his next buck or how he was going to be losing the job that he could steal from and loaf around at while his mother did all the business planning behind the scenes. Jack, in a way, depended on his mother for everything and she would give it to him and he hated her for this. And so, as a result of the aircraft explosion, and because there was no law at the time against bombing an aircraft, a bill was introduced and signed by President Dwight D. Eisenhower on July 14, 1956, which made the intentional bombing of a commercial airline illegal. Life magazine published a photo series of all the victims, which will be up on Instagram and Facebook, as well as a number of other photos from the investigation and trial. So thanks, everyone. I'll have a new episode in a couple of weeks, and I hope you'll be anticipating it as much as I am.